Okay, let's get started if we could. We'll open with a word of prayer this morning. Our Father, we do come before you giving you praise and thanksgiving for the privilege to come together as the body of Christ. We ask you to be with us this morning. Help us as we walk through the book of Daniel to uh, get it right, that you would illumine our minds by your Holy Spirit and show us the truth. Lord, more than anything, that we would take it and apply it to our lives and change our way of thinking where we're contrary to what the scriptures teach. Father, we uh, thank you for the privilege of gathering together, the freedom we have to openly discuss the scriptures. We pray that you would be pleased by all that's done in this place this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This is week number nine in our study of the book of Daniel. And last week we finished chapter two, where we saw Daniel's interpretation of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had of a great statue that was made of many different materials. And we saw that in the interpretation of that, uh, Daniel said these different materials represent future kingdoms or empires that would arise. And of course, we have the privilege of looking back at history. So uh, while Daniel didn't name uh, these empires, we certainly see the characteristics of some of them um, that were lived out in the uh, kingdoms that came after the Babylonians. Remember, this started with the Babylonian kingdom, which is in the um, early 600s BC. And then Daniel named a couple other kingdoms that come. The next ones, uh, as we look in history that came, were the Persians, and then the Greeks, mainly Alexander the Greek, and then the Romans came after them. And so we were kind of just trying to summarize how all this worked. Those were the four kingdoms. There's a fifth one that I'll talk about here in a minute. But when we looked at the Roman Empire, we saw that it was indeed split into two, a Western and an Eastern Empire um, in the early 300s when uh, Constantine took the capital and moved it to Constantinople, you know, what is today Istanbul, Turkey. Um, that the kingdom basically split into two, and the Western Kingdom of the Romans declined pretty rapidly after, uh, after they moved the capital. And by 468 AD, um, it was completely overrun. Um, the West, that's what the year that Rome was burned. There were barbaric tribes that invaded them multiple times. Uh, and so over the course of about 100 to 150 years, Rome was greatly diminished until it was actually no longer part of the empire and just the Eastern Empire existed. And so that, what is known as the Byzantine Empire, went on for another thousand years into the 1400s AD. And so what we see Daniel interpret which goes all the way from Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom to through the Roman Empire is about 2,000 years. So there's a lot of history that is contained within this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. 
After the Byzantine Empire in the 1400s, the Ottomans overthrew um, <clears throat> Constantinople, changed its name to Istanbul, it became Muslim, and then they expanded their empire a little bit into um, Eastern um, Europe, uh, Northern Africa, all the way down into what we today call the Middle East. And that empire, while it existed, it didn't have the influence and the power that the other four did, that the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans had, who had worldwide control, really. Um, the Ottoman Empire existed all the way up until World War I, when it was then split up by the agreements after World War I, um, created all those countries that we now see in the Middle East that did not exist prior to World War I. It was all just known as the Ottoman Empire. So um, while the Ottoman Empire, we know about it and it existed, it's not included in the dream because it was not world controlling. Europe certainly functioned without the Ottoman Empire. Um, and then of course the New Worlds being discovered uh, during the Ottoman Empire, they had no influence there. Uh, England, you know, um, monopolized really um, a lot of different areas across the globe. So the Ottoman Empire existed and it was powerful, but not with the same influence as those who came before them. So they're not in the dream. But the dream goes on and includes um, an empire made without hands, meaning the empire of God. And that, the scriptures clearly speak, is an eternal kingdom. Um, established now but not yet visible but it will become visible and as we saw in um, as we walk through the book of Ezekiel that that empire uh, beginning in chapter 37 I believe it is all the way through the end of the book that's not right chapter 33 through the end of the book is the establishment of the earthly kingdom of Jesus Christ for a millennia for a thousand years. And we saw that in clear colors as we walk through Ezekiel. So this dream of Nebuchadnezzar includes that. And you'll remember chapters 38 and 39 of Ezekiel detail the final war of human history where a God again for the second time destroys all those who come against him, all those who are cited against him. That's the war of Revelation 20 that we looked at in Ezekiel. So it includes all of that in this dream of Nebuchadnezzar and all the way to really the eternal state, which comes after that final war, then the final judgment, and then the establishment of the eternal state where those who place faith in Christ are actually physically with God in the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven. So all of that would be included in Nebuchadnezzar's dream because it clearly talks about the stone made without hands that crushes all the other kingdoms. And so this dream, I believe, is all-encompassing of human history from the time when Nebuchadnezzar had it all the way through to today is included in that. Uh, the coming millennial reign of Jesus Christ is included and the eternal state is all included in this dream. So God did give this sweeping revelation 
to Nebuchadnezzar that covers all of human history from that time forward. There'd be a lot of skeptics who would debunk that and say that's not true. But if you just read the dream for what it says, that is what it says, that all of human history is included. And true to form, since the fall of the Roman Empire, there has been no empire, there's not today, that dominates the world. I mean, we see, you know, in the taxation laws that just got passed, there are 132 countries joined in to pass that. So there's nobody who dominates any significant part of the, of the world. They all dominate their own countries and maybe a few scattered, um, you know, lands outside of their country, but nobody dominates the world, and I doubt they ever will because what we had in World War I, then we had in World War II, will certainly happen again if the world can't get along. And so um, there's been nobody since the Romans who dominated the whole world, and that was a long time ago. It's, we're now at 700 years and counting since the fall of the Eastern Roman Empire. So um, this dream gives us perspective on what we should anticipate, what we should expect, um, and what the current condition of the world is, and it won't change. Nobody is gonna dominate the whole world until we get to the final seven years of tribulation, and the Antichrist tries to, but still doesn't dominate the whole world. Um, it certainly dominates a lot of it, and we'll look at that as we, as we get further in Daniel, and then ultimately in Revelation, but um, doesn't ever dominate the entire world. Matter of fact, Daniel leaves him fighting with many other countries. Um, that's kind of how the, the, um, the vision that Daniel has ends. Um, so nothing settled there really um, in Daniel's dream. So I guess the right thing for us to do, I believe, is to believe this dream represents all of human history. And those same people who would debunk that thought also are skeptical that Daniel 1 through 5 actually represent any events that are of any significance. They basically debunk those first five chapters as not being real events. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar didn't have the dream. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't go insane. Uh, the three men aren't thrown into the to the fire. Um, that those things are just you know fables. They're not true. They didn't really happen. Um, I don't take that tact. Uh, I believe that the scripture always speaks the truth. And while sometimes there is symbolism, there is imagery in the scriptures. Um, Daniel is too specific and too detailed and too clear on what he's saying for it just to be a fable. And I believe these things actually happened, and that's the way that I'll present them as we go through this. That, um, you know, when you get to chapter 6, they struggle a little bit because they do know that uh, Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar, was overrun by Cyrus the Persians, and they did take his kingdom from him. And so they get a little sideways when you get to chapter 6 because that's real history, and we have it well detailed. Um, so... You know, they, and they know Nebuchadnezzar was a real king, 
and that he did defeat all these countries that we looked at in Ezekiel. That's chronicled in, in history of the Egyptians and the Babylonians, and later the historians who came after them wrote the same thing. So um, that's kind of hard to debunk the history, but they debunk the reality of the stories in Daniel. I, I don't agree with that. I believe the, the Daniel's writing, what he remembers uh, about his early days in Babylon. So I uh, just wanted to kind of say that at the beginning this morning before we go further. Um, you know, I, I believe this next story, which is uh, clearly a miracle of God, um, just like Daniel receiving the dream and its interpretation were given by God. Um, this protection that's given in this next event um, is given by God. And I think this is a, a real event and not something that Daniel just wrote some symbolic, you know, meaningless fable about. So um, anyway, you have, to, you have to decide where you land in that. Um, because, I mean, there are a lot. I would say the majority of the guys who study Daniel disagree with what I just said. Um, but that doesn't mean we're wrong. It just means they disagree, right? So um, you have to decide what you, what you believe about that and what you believe about these stories. And um, because they, I mean, they clearly teach um, the, the control of God of human history and the faith of these men whom God used in a great way in the land of Babylon and later in the land of Persia. So um, this morning, we'll go on and we'll begin chapter 3. Um, we won't get through all of this, but we'll get through a good, good bit of it. Um, and this is the story about the three men thrown into the fiery furnace. You probably know it well. You grew up in church, you heard this when you were young, and then you heard it again and again. So uh, we won't take a lot of time, but we will walk through it. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3 of Daniel, there the scripture reads, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up on the, up on the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates and the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe and all and kinds of music and all kinds of music you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up but whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire therefore at that time when all the peoples that heard the sound of the 
of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshiped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So you have this idol, really, that Nebuchadnezzar created. And with this coming on the heels, at least in the order that Daniel wrote them, of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, I think you can see that the dream went to his head. That, you know, remember that he is the greatest king that there ever will be, that he is the head of gold. And so I'm the head of gold. I think I'll build myself a golden image to represent that I'm the head of gold. And this thing is huge. Okay, 60 um, cubits high is 90 feet high, and six, feet, six cubits wide is nine feet wide. So we don't know how deep it was, but it's nine feet by 90 feet. Now, 90 feet, just so you can kind of get an image, how big is that? Um, the hospital, over, the new hospital that you come by is not as tall as this. This is, you know, so it's pretty big. I mean, it's, you know, and it's on the plain of Dura. So you have this huge plain area, and you set up this 90-foot-tall statue. You're going to be able to see it across the whole plain. You're going to see it from a long way off. And so that's what he's doing. He's setting up this, I would call it an idol. He, they, the scripture just calls it an image. But it's clear that Nebuchadnezzar wants people to bow down to it. So you remember when Daniel interpreted the dream that Nebuchadnezzar, we said, got it right. He heard him. He understood him. But when he spoke about the one true God, he called him the God of gods. So Nebuchadnezzar did not lose his um, multiple gods, his idolatry, when Daniel gave him the interpretation, although he understood it, and he understood that Daniel's God was greater than any other God. Yet he didn't give up his uh, multiple God worship. And so because he's the God of gods, but the other gods still exist. And so you have to recognize that when Nebuchadnezzar begins to build this idol, that while he, he's understanding, and later he'll understand more, and then later I think he gets it right, but at this point he doesn't yet understand all that. And his, his theology is still based in multiple gods. Now, um, so I, I think this is an image to Nebuchadnezzar. Um, it represents him is why he built it because it's all of gold and he's the head of gold in the dream that Daniel interpreted. So large figure sitting in the plain and Nebuchadnezzar calls all the, really the, the heads of his kingdom. You notice they have multiple languages because all the people weren't in Babylon. They're not all Chaldeans. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom extends far. I mean, clearly over in Jerusalem, he's still in control, all northern of Jerusalem. Tyre and Sidon have fallen to him. The Assyrians have fallen to him. So all these people of various languages, 
um, are in the kingdom of Babylon, although they're not in Babylon. Babylon is where it is today, um, over in uh, Iraq today, uh, between the Tigris and Euphrates River. That's where the city of ba uh, Babylon is. And then there was a province within the Babylonian kingdom called Babylon. So you have this province that has a city in it. And you remember that Daniel is the ruler of Babylon, the province. That's how we ended chapter 1. So Daniel is the ruler, and his three friends are the administrative people in charge of this place where Nebuchadnezzar lives and where he built this image. Because the plain of Dura is in the province of Babylon, it says. So Daniel is in charge of this area where this image has been built. I doubt he participated in the building of the image, but nevertheless, it's in his province and under the administration of his friends is where all this is taking place. So Nebuchadnezzar calls all of the leaders of all of his provinces to come together on this plane. So you know included in that would have been Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but also Daniel would have been included. I mean, how can you have a meeting of all the rulers of all the kingdom when the most significant ruler over the most significant province not be there? I mean, so Daniel was there. Um, so we'll talk about that in a minute because he's not mentioned in this anywhere. But he had to be there because all the people, all the leaders were there. And he's the greatest ruler in the Babylonian kingdom underneath Nebuchadnezzar. That's clear because he rules the Babylonian province. And it says rules. It's not that he was just a figurehead. He ruled it. And then his friends did all the administration. So um, I believe that Daniel is there. Now this is basically forced idol worship. You can worship the idol or not, but if you don't, you're going to be killed. So this is like orchestrated forced idol worship. When you hear the music, everybody fall down. Now. The Chaldeans had no problem with that because they were multiple God anyway. So what's another image? They had no problem. And the other Israelites who had come with Daniel and his three friends had no problem with it because they had been indoctrinated into the Chaldean way of life. And so they multiple gods, that's okay. That's no big problem. Now, they, I don't understand these guys because... Most of them, I believe, would have also been born during the reign of King Josiah back, you remember we looked at that, that's why, where Daniel got his theology from, that they found the book of the law and they worshiped according to it, Josiah being the greatest king ever in the history of Israel, meaning he was better than David. Um, it's kind of a large statement to make, but that's what the scripture said when we looked at it back over in 2 Kings. That, uh, and that's when Ezekiel was born, that's when Daniel was born, and that's where most of these young people who were taken and indoctrinated were born. Why they gave up their theology and these other four didn't, God knows. Um, we don't really understand that, but they did. 
I mean, they were living the good life, they were given the good food, they were given the best wine, they had the best schools, they had the best teachers, and they just went with it. And so they have no problem bowing down, but these four men would have had... Yeah, well, they did fear for their life at the beginning. I think later they were just living the good life because they were all in the administration. They were the nobility of Babylon. And so um, why not do what they say? Because you're being treated pretty well. Um, so um, at the beginning, they clearly feared for their life, but not later. Um, so something that you need to recognize here um, the term worship is used three times. It's in verses 5, 6, and 7. But this term is not the way that we typically think about worship like we would hope to do this morning that God would find acceptable in his sight. It's, um, it's the same word used back in 246 where you remember after Daniel gave the interpretation of the dream, then King um, 2.46, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel. That word did homage is the same term that is translated worship three times over in chapter three. Why they did that, I'm not sure. So instead of being worship, I think it's more like um, saying the Pledge of Allegiance are giving Nebuchadnezzar tribute that you will be loyal to him. It's more that kind of thing than worship. If you bow down to his image, then you're basically saying, I'll be loyal to Nebuchadnezzar. I will um, you know, obey what he commands me to do. Uh, it's that kind of thing as opposed to idol worship. And so all the way through here, you'll see that term worship but that's the connotation of it. It's more uh, giving allegiance to somebody than it is uh, worshiping them. So um, it changes it a little bit for you, right? The way that what Nebuchadnezzar was calling for um, wasn't calling for the people to worship the idol. He's calling for the people to be loyal to him throughout all his um, kingdom. And so... Um, We'll go ahead and read the, the next section here, uh, eight, beginning in verse 8. This is after everybody falls down and worships, gives tribute to the image. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. Now, not all the Jews, just a few of them. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. You, you kind of wonder, did he not remember that? I mean, why they say that? But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. 
they do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar in rage and anger gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Okay, so um, you have these Chaldeans who we talked about this. They are opposed to these Jews being over them, especially these young Jewish men, probably late teens, early 20s at most when they were appointed. And everybody knows the only reason these three guys were appointed as the administrators over the province of Babylon is because Daniel requested the king to do so. That's the only reason. I mean, Scripture was clear about that. that that's the last verse of chapter 2 that Nebuchadnezzar honored Daniel, set Daniel up as the ruler of Babylon, gave him great treasuries, um, did homage himself before him. You remember Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face before Daniel. Ridiculous thought, abs absurd scene that you have the king of the whole world falling on his face before this 20-year-old Jewish guy who just gave him his interpretation of his dream. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. But he did it. And so everybody knew what Nebuchadnezzar thought about Daniel. And so whatever Daniel asked, Nebuchadnezzar was going to do, and he asked that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be set up as the administrators underneath him because he could trust them and they could administer the province. So everybody knows the only reason they're there is because Daniel requested Nebuchadnezzar to do so. So these guys, and, and, you know, these Chaldeans have been there a lot longer than these young Jewish men have. I mean, you know, we don't know. Daniel doesn't give any time frame references in chapter 2 or chapter 3. So we don't know when it is. But apparently chapter 2 was pretty soon after they had been appointed, which is only three years after they got to Babylon. And then because of the golden image probably being a result of the dream, this could all happen within five years of when they got there. So they've only been there five years, and these other Chaldeans have been there their whole life. And all of a sudden, they're underneath these guys. And you remember, Daniel was set up as um, the head of all the magicians and sorcerers and prefects and all of that. He, he's, he's in charge of these guys. So um, they clearly don't like that. But they're smart enough not to go against Daniel because Daniel is the guy that Nebuchadnezzar favors. And so to go against Daniel would be like high treason. You're going against the guy that Nebuchadnezzar set up as number two in his kingdom. Probably not a smart thing to do. But the other three only got their positions because Daniel asked for it. So those guys, probably fair game to go against them. So I believe that's why Daniel's not included in this, in this story about the fiery furnace. He was there. He had to be there. I mean, he's the number one guy of all the leaders and all the kingdom of Babylon. So he's got to be there. But 
And, and I'm sure he would not have bowed down, just like his friends didn't bow down. Probably they all stood together, and they didn't bow down. But nobody's going to go against Daniel. He, you know, that you're, you're going to lose that battle. And everybody knew that, because he's the one that gave the dream and its interpretation. So they're all in awe of Daniel, and there's something special about that guy, but not these other three. Even though Daniel included them in the giving of the dream and the interpretation, they, they missed that part. They, they didn't care about that part. So they accuse, and rightly so, these three men of not bowing down to the image when the music played. And so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure they didn't because they don't deny it, the truth of it. Um, they just stick to it. Matter of fact, they double down when they go before Nebuchadnezzar. You can see it, and this is where we'll end today, but beginning in verse 13, well, we, I read that, we'll begin in 14. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of musics, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Now, clearly Nebuchadnezzar has forgotten, right? I mean, the God of gods is the God of these guys, but he's forgotten that part because he got the big head after he heard the interpretation of the dream. And... He's giving these guys a chance. And I think probably because he doesn't always believe what the Chaldeans tell him. So, you know, he's basically saying, is it true that you won't fall down and worship the image? And if it's not true, then just do it again when I play the music. So he's giving them a chance because he doesn't know the truthfulness of the Chaldeans. So, I mean, I think being reasonable, he's angry that the, this report has come to him, but at least he gives them a chance. And then their response, this is the double down, right? Um, verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. Really? If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Uh, that's in your face, too, the king of the whole world. Um, I mean, they say, well, you don't need to play the music. We're not going to do what you want us to do, no matter what. Even if we have to die, we're not going to do it. And it's interesting. Our God is able to save us out of your hand. Absolutely true. But they don't know if he is or is not going to. So they say, and even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down. And they have no idea if they're going to die or if they're going to live. 
if they get thrown into the fire. Matter of fact, I think they probably anticipated dying. I mean, how are you going to go into a furnace when no one has ever gone into a furnace before and lived, right? So I think they expect to die, especially after he turns up the heat and the guys who are carrying them to throw them into the furnace die because the, the flames are so hot and they don't even go into the furnace. And yet they die just trying to throw them into the furnace. So I think they anticipated dying at this point. And they're willing to die instead of worship opposed to God, the one true God. So they have every bit as much faith and trust in God as Daniel did. I mean, it's clear from what they say here. You don't, don't play any music. We're not going to bow down. Even if you throw us into the fire and we die, we're still not going to bow down. And um, just to, this is King Nebuchadnezzar, right? The man who rules the whole world. He's got the big head because of the dream interpretation. He's built this great image and he wants people to be loyal to him and to uh, and announce that by bowing down before this image. And these guys say, no chance, we're not going to do that. And, you know, they're 20 years old. And, um, and they're the administrators of the province because Daniel asked them to be. We just look at Daniel, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar's response and we'll stop. Verse 19, look at what it says. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath and his facial expression was altered toward them. So this, this guy is so angry that even his face changes appearance. So it, Nebuchadnezzar understood what they said, right? And here's the king of the whole world, as angry as he can possibly be at you. And so we'll look at the story, the rest of the story, next time. But um, these guys are faithful to God. They, they trust God, they believe him. Even if they have to give their lives, they're willing to do that. Just as Daniel later was willing to give his life um, when, you know, um, not under Nebuchadnezzar, but under Cyrus when he gets thrown into the lion's den. You know, it's not under Nebuchadnezzar, it's under the Persians. Um, willing to give his life. Um, and these guys, the same. Now, after this story, we have no idea what happens to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Not included anywhere else, but you can just imagine. These guys come out of the furnace and they don't even smell like they were near fire. Now all the satraps and magistrates and sorcerers and magicians recognize them every bit as much as they do Daniel. So, and, and uh, it's not mentioned but this is why I think these three guys and Daniel administer the kingdom of Babylon when Nebuchadnezzar goes insane because nobody is going to oppose these guys because nobody has had the experience that they have. So we'll pick up there next time. I appreciate your time.